Hello, I am Oliver Tonby. Welcome to the Future of Asia podcast series. The Asian century has begun. Asia is the world's largest regional economy. It is at the center of the technology revolution. It is at the center of consumption growth, consumers of the future. It is at the center of climate risk and what we need to do to mitigate. As our economies evolve further, Asia has the potential to fuel and shape the next normal. In each episode, we are going to feature conversations with leaders from across the region to discuss what Asia's rise means for businesses everywhere. Welcome, welcome everyone to the Future of Asia podcast series. Today's topic is investing in carbon markets. This is Oliver Tomby speaking. I am joined by three distinguished panelists. I am joined by Adeline Aw. She is the Vice President of Environmental Sustainability at the EDB. I am joined by Tong Shi Shang. He is the Managing Director of Enterprise Strategy at GIC. And I am joined by Badri Ramanathan. He is a senior partner at McKinsey and & Company. And all three of our panelists today are authors in a newly released report called Putting Carbon Markets to Work on a Path to Meet Net Zero. And here, let's dig in. Let's just understand a little bit about who you are before we get into the content. Let me ask each of you, we've now been through one and a half, two years of COVID. What are some of the learnings, personal or professional, that you've had during that period? So maybe on the personal side, I've learned that my daughters are delightful when they are playing well with each other. I have a seven-year-old and a five-year-old. And during COVID and the work from home and home-based learning, I've had much more exposure to that. But they are terrible when they're fighting with each other and I'm on a call on Zoom with my boss and the management committee. On the professional side, I think I've really learned about the importance of almost over-communicating to my team, to my stakeholders, with the people I work with, because they can't really pick up some of the subtle cues that we're all used to in meetings and you can't really stand up and whiteboard a solution anymore. So it's really about being a lot more prepared and a lot more deliberate in communicating your points across. Excellent. Thank you, Tongchi. Adeline. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Oliver. I, I really, you know, through the last uh, couple of years, really learned how, it, how adaptive, how innovative and how resilient actually we can all be in the middle of a real, you know, life crisis. And, and that really came through both professionally and, and personally for me. You know, professionally, um, we, we had to do many things at the EDB that we were not used to doing, you know, including helping the industry tide over a period of crisis, dealing with the situation both in their companies as well as with their employees at the EDB. On the personal side, I think really finding new ways of uh, interacting with family and friends in the new normal, you know, as everyone likes to call it, is, is really something that... It took some getting used to, but I think we're now, you know, in, in that new um, groove and people are kind of getting used to it. So that's really something that I, I, I learned, you know, through this entire experience. Indeed, indeed. Uh, very hectic times. Uh, Badri, last but not least, what are your reflections on, on the last year or two? Sure, Oliver. I mean, uh, it's, of course, been quite a difficult time and so on. But to focus on the positive, I think what was brought home to me is... Sometimes a constraint can really open up opportunities, right? So we kept talking about how digitization might take a while to make progress and customers may not adopt certain things and so on. 
and suddenly when they had no choice uh, you see uh, things growing by leaps and bounds so sometimes uh, constraints can lead to progress and i just look at the positive and what can we do to make the world a better place superb thank you all let's dig into some of the content now and all three of you are our core authors of uh, of this report that you have just released on carbon markets and how they can help us on the path to net zero Let's start with the basics first. Adeline, let me ask you, what are carbon markets? So we're really in the middle of a low carbon transition right now. And what's really important is, you know, to, to help finance, you know, and, and bring um, to life projects that can help us to uh, remove and to avoid carbon emissions. And that's what carbon markets are for. So in the compliance space, you know, uh, carbon markets are where you have an instrument called a carbon allowance or an offset that's used to meet regulatory requirements to decarbonize. And they are important because they place a price on carbon, which can then influence you know, business uh, actions to decarbonize. In the voluntary market space, on the other hand, that's where carbon, carbon uh, credits are used on a voluntary basis and they are not for meeting regulatory requirements. They allow corporates to uh, really meet their corporate climate commitments and drive investment in carbon avoidance and removal uh, projects towards that, that goal. Exactly. And we're, we're going to come back to this, the difference between voluntary and compliance markets in a, in a second. But I want, I, I want to go to Tong Chi first. Why, why is this important, Tong Chi, to have carbon uh, markets? I mean, a carbon market doesn't remove more CO2. So why, why is this important? Thanks, Oliver. I think it's super important and very interesting for us because it really puts a price on what economists call an externality. Right, like Adeline said, it puts a price on carbon. I think before the advent of carbon markets, uh, you had carbon being really an unpriced byproduct of industrial processes. People didn't even really think about how much carbon was spewing into the atmosphere from their corporate and personal activities. And really because we are working in a market society and a capitalist system, that kind of byproduct was not factored into the decisions of companies or regulators or, or individuals. But with carbon markets, for the first time, you have a price, an explicit cost that decision makers in companies and individuals will have to take into account because they are compelled to pay for this price in the compliance markets. And there is a willingness to pay for them in the, in the voluntary space. So for the first time, you can actually do things like think about the economics of conservation and the preservation of forests, as an example. Historically, it's been very hard to get good economics and, to put it bluntly, a profitable business model from preserving forests or mangrove swamps or planting trees, right? It's a public good. It requires uh, taxpayer money to be pumped into it. It's really historically been the province of governments and public policy. But with a carbon price and a carbon market, you can have a mechanism where the companies and foundations and entities doing preservation activity and planting trees being able to monetize the benefits of storing carbon, of capturing carbon, and that gets traded in a market. And that incentivizes private investors, private companies to allocate capital to what is an activity that will be beneficial for climate change. So it's really exciting because it really harnesses the power of market prices and market signals for the good of the planet and for, for the fight against climate change. 
how is that price set? So, you know, Tongchi, let's stay with you for a second here. But how is how does the price setting happen? So it it happens slightly differently in the compliance markets and in the voluntary markets. So take the compliance markets, which I think is the most straightforward example. So here the regulator gets involved, right? The first step is that the government or the regulator sets a cap on the total amount of carbon emissions that companies can emit, and this has been happening in real life in the European Union for about twenty years now. So companies that emit more carbon than their regulatory cap have to buy additional carbon allowances. Otherwise, they are in violation of the law and they get penalized. And companies that emit less than the cap can sell them. So now you have these two sets of companies: those that emit more and those who emit less, having to trade with each other uh, through intermediaries to be able to balance out their carbon emissions so that they meet the regulatory cap. And companies that want to buy the allowances have to pay an explicit price to the companies um, that sell them. And what is that? Price that the companies will have to pay. Well, that depends on the opportunity cost, right? The next best alternative, which is either to reduce output, and therefore the carbon price is equivalent to the foregone output and value of of that company, or they have to invest in carbon abatement technologies, right? Carbon capture or storage, or some other low carbon industrial processes, and that price therefore gets set according to the marginal cost of reducing carbon. So it's economically pretty efficient. It's almost a textbook case of how you would price an externality to get companies to internalize the cost of carbon in their corporate decision making. Perfect. Thank you, Tongchi. I'm going to go to you, Badri. We've now heard the words compliance, carbon markets, voluntary carbon markets a few times. What's the difference between the two? And Is there any difference in the growth and the popularity of these two different uh, mechanisms? Sure, Oliver. So, as Tongchi said, compliance carbon markets are driven almost entirely by regulatory actions, right? This has been happening over 20 years now. They're not yet huge, but they are sizable already, right? So, we are talking about market value of about 100 billion dollars worldwide, with a sort of trading turnover of about uh, 250 billion dollars. Right, so these markets are becoming sizable, and they are entirely driven by regulatory actions. This is not one market; there are more than 20 such markets around the world, and we expect 20 more to come online soon, including uh, recently China brought one of uh, emissions trading scheme online. So this uh, space will develop. Now, just to contrast this with uh, with the voluntary carbon markets, uh, these are still nascent and small, right? Uh, so total value of these markets is about 300 million today, so a fraction of the size of the CCMs, if you will. But uh, they've been growing rapidly, right? At least 20% a year for the last few years, and we uh, do expect that voluntary carbon markets will uh, continue to grow and will uh, become as important as uh, CCMs. And and this is a good thing because it uh, it gives more avenues for for folks to. Uh, Participate in the global carbon market and to mitigate uh, the emissions that are not abatable immediately. I heard you saying there are more than twenty markets in place already. What are some of the leading ones, and what are the learnings that we have from there? So I think uh, there are two large ones in the U.S. Uh, one, in, uh, particularly in California, another on the East Coast. The European Union uh, is actually one of the earliest ones, which was. In operation and uh, a few smaller ones in New Zealand and, like I said, uh, China. Now, I don't want to give the impression this is one smooth market operating sort of in a connected way across. These are all quite different, and the prices can be quite different across. 
right? But of course, the regulators do compare notes and they do look at each other and try to chart a way forward, which which uh, might end up synchronizing these. The mechanisms are also quite different, right? Some some are sort of an open auction kind of uh, mechanism. Others are just simply are allocated a certain amount of credits and then you go and trade them. So what I'm trying to paint is a picture of variety. But then I think this is actually a good thing because through this, we will actually discover what's the most efficient mode of, of this market, right? As the years go by and uh, we'll settle on something which which can scale much more. Yeah, just to just to add to that, Badri, I think they are not just diverse across the different compliance carbon markets, but also evolving over time. So, you know, just to take the largest single one today in the European Union, that is also one of the oldest, right? Like I mentioned earlier, it's been in existence for about 20 years. The European emissions trading system today is quite different from the one 10 years ago or 20 years ago. I mean, it's the same, but the details of the regulations um, and the market mechanisms have evolved as policymakers and market participants have learned over time. So to give you a specific example, two or three years ago, the European Union introduced a market stability reserve to be able to more directly control the amount of excess supply or short supply in the market. And that's allowed them a more direct lever to influence the trajectory of carbon prices in the market for a long time uh, until about four or five years ago. If you kind of look at the historical price charts, the price of carbon in the European ETS has been pretty low, and that has been widely seen to be not as effective in inducing corporate actions to fight climate change and to abate carbon emissions. But recently with the MRS, with the Market Stability Reserve Mechanism, the regulators have been able to put the EU on a path of increasingly lower carbon emissions more directly, and that's resulted in an increasing price, right? You see see the price of um, emissions, they're increasing from about 30 euros 12 months ago to over 60 euros now. So that's that's one mechanism, just the most visible one on price. I think on the other dimension is around the coverage. I think regulators are learning that it's not just about the headline price, the coverage of how many sectors and what percentage of the economy's total emissions is covered by the emissions trading regime is also important. And here I think regulators are quite rightly trying to expand them over time. So you see the EU doing that. You see China starting small with only the power generation sector, but with explicit plans to expand it to chemicals and steel and so on. Thank you. I want to I go to you, Adeline. This sounds fascinating. From a government point of view, why would governments around the world, you know, how do they think about these carbon markets? And I know that you know Singapore is at the forefront on many, on, on many dimensions. So how do governments think about this? Well, in Singapore, we, we don't really have an emissions trading uh, system. What we have is a, you know, a, a simple uh, carbon tax regime. And I, I think when we were starting out with our climate measures, I think where we were coming from was really to look for a simple and uh, effective system that could provide you know, a, a clear price signal to businesses to decarbonize and, and starting small. But we did say we were going to review the system you know, as, as the, the years go by. And in fact, we are right now reviewing um, the trajectory as well as the level of the carbon price. Uh, but I, I think from a government perspective, there are many factors to take into account. One, of course, is you know, the, the incentive to, for businesses to decarbonize, as Tongchi and, and Badri have, have spoken about. But the other, of course, is 
I, I think the effect, you know, um, on other important dimensions, um, including economic competitiveness, affordability uh, of, you know, uh, electricity, for example, right, for consumers from such measures in the power sector and so on. So there are many different aspects. So I think the question is really how do, do we put in place the right policies and the, the measures that can encourage that transition to a low-carbon future while managing a lot of these other complex um, dimensions in the equation. But I, I think, you know, um, going back to Asia and, and Southeast Asia in particular, we see many countries in the region also stepping up action over recent years. And in fact, some of the other um, Southeast Asian countries have announced that they are considering emissions trading uh, schemes. So, you know, I, I think that the transition is gaining momentum and carbon markets will uh, play an important role. So this, this is really on the compliance front. But on the voluntary space, we also see more corporates, you know, um, committing to climate action. Uh, and, and that's great. It also means that uh, they will uh, need to look for avenues to address uh, different parts of uh, emissions, including some of the residual hard-to-abate emissions. And that's where I think carbon markets and carbon credits have a, a, a big, you know, um, a role to play here to offer a cost-effective and complementary way for uh, corporates to, to decarbonize their such emissions in addition to other um, important abatement measures that they are taking as well in their value chain. So I do think that there are um, strong drivers that I see um, that will, I think, help to encourage the growth of these markets. Asia's standing in the world has changed. And it's clear that where the focus once was on how quickly the region would rise, the reality is now all about how Asia will lead. Keep listening to the Future of Asia podcast. Badri, I want to turn to you. You work with many uh, institutional investors. You work with uh, banks and the likes around the region. How do they think about carbon markets? So for institutional investors, this is an increasingly important topic and uh, there are many facets to this. First of all, uh, we make it clear and uh, I think most institutional investors would agree that, you know, net zero should be the ultimate goal and uh, abatement is incredibly important. Within that context, I think there are several elements that are uh, important. First of all, global warming poses a risk to, to portfolios and to businesses. So I think the first step is to quantify that risk, to put a number on it and try to create scenarios and so on. And there carbon markets can actually play a significant role in helping to address the impact arising out of global warming. So if we just look at a normal 60-40 reference uh, portfolio, uh, which is uh, globally diversified, allocating about half to 1% of carbon allowances in such a portfolio can help mitigate this risk. And if you've done nothing, you'd perhaps have lost 20 to 40 basis points of returns over a 30-year period. Sorry, Badri, just to interrupt you there, just to understand what you're saying. You're saying that there's risk from the energy transition. There's risk for the, the, the returns of a portfolio, and that is order of magnitude 20 to 40 basis points. That's what you're saying. Yes. Okay. And, that, and then you say that you know, carbon markets can actually help mitigate some of that. Exactly. So even a small allocation would help. Half a percent to one percent allocated to this asset class uh, can help mitigate this risk. So that's the first way of thinking about it as a sort of potential hedge to climate risks. The second way we look at it, 
it's an emerging asset class in its own right because of the characteristics of the returns the sort of volatility patterns that are exhibited these are quite different from current asset classes so if you took the same 6040 reference portfolio which is expected to return say 4% annually over the next 30 years adding 5% carbon to the portfolio could generate returns of about 50 basis points annually so this is actually quite a meaningful improvement uh, in the returns but i do want to go back to the theme of abatement first and the goal Uh, really being net zero because the idea is to use these markets to support abatement objectives and not use them as a way to profit that cannot be the primary uh, motive so investors should make sure that they are taking other actions like uh, direct investment in projects uh, supporting carbon capture projects working with the investor companies helping them set uh, decarbonization goals helping them to focus along those and only when all those actions have been taken then they could certainly look at uh, you know carbon as an asset class and then look at uh, the kind of effect it has uh, as part of hedging strategies thank you i'm going to go back to adlin for a second because i know adlin you've also been looking at what are some of the sectors that are more affected less affected by by climate risk could would you just care to elaborate a little bit on that and some what are some of the sectors that should be even more interested in these markets if you look at the risk climate change poses to business value I think there are the different dimensions to to think about it, but but one way is to think about actually where business value and business strategies are greatest are most at risk, and and frankly that's really in the uh, resource intensive and the energy intensive sectors, and and so actually, in a way we we see that uh, many of the leading companies in these sectors are taking action to think about how they can really incorporate carbon mitigation carbon abatement measures into. their business strategies the international oil companies are thinking about how they can really transform you know their businesses to adapt to a, a lower carbon future and we see that as a growing trend especially in the recent um, years so i really think it's important that investors also consider how they can play a, a role in enabling uh, this transition you know in in these sectors and and in fact maybe just to go back to the voluntary carbon markets you know beyond investing in a, in the secondary market actually right now what we urgently need is to unlock investment to build up the necessary expertise and infrastructure to scale the supply of high quality compensation and neutralization projects i think investors can play a more active role to catalyze this development and facilitate that that transition so this would include really committing and purchasing carbon credits of high integrity for to meet their own um uh, ESG goals investing directly in projects to help uh, scale up the supply of high quality credits supporting the establishment of high integrity um standards in the voluntary carbon markets and then guiding you know portfolio companies uh, in their transition in their journey to net zero so that they make choices that are aligned with i think reinforcing the trust and the integrity of these global markets that's necessary to ensure that you know uh, we we see a stable a successful and a continued progress and transition in in, in this journey got it i want to shift to you tongchi uh, you gic is one of the largest institutional investors you know globally we heard badri saying you know the risk here from the energy transition 20 to 40 basis points uh, carbon markets can help mitigate a significant part of that How do you think about this? Both the opportunities here but also what are some of the risks involved? 
Indeed, Oliver. I think we, we look at carbon markets as a pretty exciting development because it's one of the key mechanisms that help investors do good as well as do well at the same time. So if you cast your mind back, you know, 10, 15 years when sustainable investing and ESG investing really started entering into investors' consideration set, I think the initial reaction a decade ago was that, look, intuitively, there must be a trade-off between returns and impact, right? Because Finance 101 says that the efficient frontier for investments, if it's as unconstrained as possible, if your investment universe is as wide as possible, then surely you can gain from diversification, which is the only free lunch, right? That's what Finance 101 that everyone studies in college tells you. But I think with carbon markets, it's really a game changer in the sense that, as we said earlier, it prices an externality. It changes the economic calculus of firms to, to behave a certain way. And if you look at how uh, carbon markets are evolving, they're essentially driven by government policy in the case of compliance markets or by corporate commitments to fight climate change in the case of uh, voluntary markets. And as Badri pointed out, these things tend to have low correlation or even negative correlation with a standard portfolio of you know, 60% stocks and 40% bonds. So actually carbon markets help us diversify even more risks that have been unpriced before. So in a way it helps us expand our option set from an investment point of view, and from an impact point of view, it has a very positive outcome, right? I think we spoke about how it helps to facilitate the flow of capital into uh, nature-based solutions or reforestation projects that would otherwise not be economical. So it's really a mechanism to help us pursue both those objectives at the same time. But of course, I just want to highlight that investors really should not think about trading speculatively in carbon markets, right? When we look at the development of carbon markets, what strikes us is the parallels it has with the evolution of other commodity markets, whether it's soybeans or pork bellies or natural gas. And in commodities markets like that, investors and financial institutions really have an important role in providing liquidity, aiding price discovery, matching supply and demand over time, being market makers. And these are typical functions that we see similar in commodity markets. We think carbon markets will evolve in very much the same way. So it's about providing these value-added services rather than trading speculatively. And, and I guess for an, an, an investor like yourselves, you also would like the markets to have you know, some depth. And that isn't there just yet. Is that correct? Exactly, Oliver. I think we are... We, we find it interesting, but frankly, the markets are still at a very early stage of development. On the voluntary side, as Adeline pointed out, the quality issue is something that a lot of market participants, I think, all have to get together to try to solve collectively. Even in compliance markets, which today are more developed and more liquid and more deep, I think there is still a lot to be done in terms of the coverage, the specific regulatory mechanisms. For example, uh, China has just established its national one in July this year, and it's early days yet. So we we see uh, more development and more growth ahead. Yeah, I'm going to say, you know, um, I I think Dongqi pointed out earlier that there's a lot to do in supporting the development of the carbon markets, especially in the voluntary space. 
And you know, Singapore is making efforts to scale a well-functioning carbon market and working with like-minded partners in this journey. So, for example, we are actively participating in negotiations on Article 6 in the lead-up to and at COP26. And this will help to set rules, uh, we hope, on market and non-market cooperation between countries under the Paris Agreement. We are also working with the World Bank and IDTA, the International Emissions Trading Association, to progress the Climate Warehouse Initiative. And that seeks to connect disparate systems, different registries, to enhance the transparency and credibility of the carbon market and address you know, double counting. We're also participating in um, globally uh, leading initiatives. Here, there is space for uh, investors um, as well to help to shape some of this, especially in the private sector-led initiatives to provide uh, guidance to the market to use um, high-quality carbon credits. And um, finally, I think we are also supporting efforts to build the necessary market infrastructure for um, a high-quality, efficient, and transparent uh, carbon market. So we recently had a public-private partnership to develop a, the a Climate Impact Exchange, which is a platform for the voluntary trading of high-quality carbon credits, and, and that's uh, to be launched soon. So uh, I think um, through all these efforts, we see that uh, it's important for um, both public private as well as non-governmental, um, non non-profit stakeholders to come together to ensure that we can um, grow and scale the, the carbon markets in a way that uh, I think still continues to uh, support right? and is aligned with our efforts to make a successful transition. Adeline, I, I loved hearing what, what you just said about what you're doing. Some of the things that you are doing in Singapore is doing. Can we take one step broader and can you Talk about what, what is happening a little bit more broadly in Asia and the relevance of this for Asia. Asia and Southeast Asia can, I think, can really play a key role to enable global sustainability because we are really in the middle of a region that has a, a great source of natural assets and resources that can help us with uh, decarbonization. Southeast Asia can be a source of uh, credible and high-quality carbon credits because of our potential here as a carbon sink we have almost 15% of the world's uh, tropical forests and we contain the world's highest concentration of blue carbon stocks. We also hold the highest potential for added key biodiversity co-benefits, particularly in countries like Malaysia, Thailand, Cambodia, you know, and others in the region as well. So um, I, I think there is a real potential for decarbonization that can be unlocked with the right investments and the right um, uh, emphasis on quality. There is also a great opportunity to, I think, build up greater corporate capacity to navigate climate change. If investors can think about how they can work with their portfolio companies in the region to build up that capacity and build up the, the ability to make a successful transition, that will also, I think, help to contribute to global decarbonization. So I, I think for all these reasons, Asia is where I see great potential and, and great uh, opportunities for partnership and solutions. Wonderful. Listen, we're going to round out now. I'm not going to try to summarize everything I've heard. It's been a fascinating conversation. I just want a couple of snippets. Number one, I heard, Adeline, we, we are Asia. We're in the right region. I heard, Tongxi, you know, there's an opportunity here to both do good and do well at the same time. We heard Badri, you know, the, 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 the risk returns here mitigating 20 to 40 basis points. So, 
very rich conversations, clearly a, an, a very interesting opportunity for many companies, many individuals. I want to end by asking each of you the same question. If you put yourself in the shoes of the senior executives that are listening to this podcast, what advice would you have for them as they think about carbon markets? Let's, uh, let's start with you, Badri. I think if I were in the shoes of a senior uh, executive, I would be very excited because now there's an additional tool, right? Uh, there's an uh, emerging asset class, which is very interesting in its characteristics and how it uh, sort of uh, plays an important role uh, in, in a traditional portfolio. And uh, this now allows me to do more with my portfolio. But I think the most important thing to keep in mind is environmental integrity. I think the objective has to be net zero and to move the world forward on this dimension. And therefore, this becomes a way uh, to play a role in furthering this objective, not just for myself, but also for my investee companies. And so I would be very excited because of that. Thank you. Adeline, what advice would you have? I would say, you know, start building the expertise and the understanding now of carbon markets. It's a really technical space. Um, and it's not one that I think uh, many outside of the space uh, understand deeply. So it's important to start thinking about what, what corporate capabilities um, internally, you know, that you would need to shape your agenda and have an effective strategy to address both the risks uh, as well as the opportunities. Well said. Tong Chi. I would say that the climate imperative is real. We all have to think of ways to make our businesses and our portfolios more climate resilient. And carbon markets are not the only solution, but they will be an increasingly important part of the toolkit. Thank you. Listen, you have been three wonderful panelists. Uh, thank you so much. And uh, to all the listeners, thanks for, uh, for tuning in. And you have heard a very interesting conversation about how we can use carbon markets on the path to net zero. Have a wonderful rest of the day, everyone. And again, thank you to our three panelists. Take care. You have been listening to the Future of Asia podcast by McKinsey & Company. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at mckinsey.com slash Future of Asia or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. <laughs>